This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Welcome back, everybody. So this is uh, Sunday morning, Zoom Zazen, uh, the 19th of July, 2020. And the Dharma talk today is going to be on Zazen and attachment theory. It's the second talk in a series of talks on the psychological and interpersonal neurobiological aspects of Zen practice. Given the limitations of time, um, it by necessity will be a simplified account of attachment theory. But in a way, I am basically providing a sketch of how I see our relationship to Zazen playing a similar function to our experience of other intimate relationships to potentiate our experience of self. Um, I will be mainly focusing on attachment theory, but I will also be mentioning a little bit about the reciprocal organization of the cerebral hemispheres. This will help us to understand um, how our experience of self is dependent upon our experience of safety, attunement, and importantly, attention. As Daniel Siegel says in his book, The Mindful Brain, mindfulness can be understood as a, a form of healthy relationship with the self. I am interested in exploring how we can incorporate into our Zen practice an understanding of the relationship between the feeling of safety, the regulation and dysregulation of self-states, and the capacity for experiencing a sense of self that has well-being, intimacy, and vitality at its core, leading to a feeling of at-homeness in the world. Now, contrary to stereotyped images of Zen practice, Zen is a communal practice. The image of the legendary figure of Bodhidharma sitting in a cave for 10 years, staring at a wall, is a kind of distortion of Zen practice. Zen is not a practice of exclusive or reclusive self-absorption. Rather, Zazen stimulates our social engagement system, facilitating the experience of safety, calmness, openness, and compassion. In a traditional Zen monastery, the monks slept in the same room together, ate the same food together, used the same bathroom together, and worked together in close quarters under challenging environmental conditions. They needed to get along with each other. 
In our ordinary mind, Zen school lineage, we no longer go off to monasteries, but we talk about our practices being amidst our relationships, our intimate relationships, our friendships, our work relationships. All of our Zen practices about relationships in that way. So let's start by contemplating or reflecting on the posture uh, of the Buddha, of the posture of Zazen. Whether sitting or reclining, the Buddha is pictured as both calm and alert at the same time, with a lovely half smile on the face. So, like the Buddha, we also take a posture which generates a feeling of calm alertness which opens the heart and engages our social engagement system. The spine is upright if sitting, supported by a triangular base. Um, that is, if you're sitting on a cushion, the base is formed by the two knees and the backside on the cushion. And if you're sitting on a chair, it's founded by the two feet flat on the floor and the backside on the chair. If you sit using a chair uh, and you wish to lean back against the chair, that's fine. But it is wise to invest in an ergonomically designed chair that supports the natural curvature of the spine. So, sitting comfortably, the belly is relaxed, the chest is open, and our face is smiling. The posture itself communicates safety, ease, and joy not only to others, but most importantly, to ourselves. The posture is the foundation of the secure base provided by Zazen practice. Now, <clears throat> the secure base is a metaphor derived from the work of John Bowlby, the founder of attachment theory. Balbi was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who was researching during the war, the Second World War and afterwards. One of the interesting things about Balbi is he also had an, uh, an interest in animal behavior. And during the Second World War, he noticed the effects of the separation of the children uh, from their parents when they were accommodated with various families outside of London to escape from the Blitz. Now, Balbi noticed the universality of attachment behavior in birds, mammals, and humans, derived from the necessity to care for their offspring, unlike reptiles and more primitive bird species. He also developed an experiment known as the strain situation. This was a situation whereby children were uh, observed being in the room with their parent. Then the parent left the room and a stranger came in. And it was observed the different uh, behaviors of children and how they responded to that situation. This led to the finding that children develop attachment behaviors and a kind of attachment style. The primary caregiver provides the secure base for the child. And when the child is in close proximity to the caregiver, it feels safe, it can relax. 
This feeling of safety allows the child to begin to explore its environment and also to play. However, at the sign of danger, or if the child falls over and hurts itself, the child returns back to the caregiver and uh, immediately seeks that close proximity, feels safe again. And this cycle repeats itself over and over again. If this all goes well, the caregiver provides reliability and attuned responsiveness. The child develops a secure attachment style. And this is also internalized as a kind of working model of how relationships are. However, if this does not work out well, in other words, if the caregiver is unreliable, unresponsive, misattuned or un unpredictable, the child develops what they call either an avoidant attachment style, that is the child kind of withdraws, or an ambivalent resistance child, the child kind of approaches and withdraws and doesn't quite know how the caregiver is going to respond, so it gets quite anxious. Later research uh, created a fourth style called the disorganized, disorientated state. Um, this kind of state was uh, observed when children came from really chaotic and abusive family backgrounds and that they were all over the place with no consistent kind of attachment style. Fortunately, these styles were not set in concrete, are not set in concrete, and later experiences of uh, adult relationships can provide what in the literature is called an earned attachment security. So the uh, relationships we can enter into as adults, in a way, can be kind of healing others. Later research, analyzing the narratives of adults in response to questions about the relationship with their parents growing up, generated a classif classification of adult attachment styles. This was known as the adult um, questioner, attachment questioner. These attachment styles closely parallel the childhood styles. So, um, the secure um, attachment became secure autonomous as an adult. The avoidant became known as dismissing as an adult. Ambivalent or resistant became known as preoccupied. And the disorganized disoriented it became known as unresolved, disorganized. What I am suggesting then in this talk is that we can use attachment theory as a metaphor as a psychological metaphor to understand our relationship with Zazen practice. In the same way as in the old Chinese and Japanese schools, when teachers would draw upon maybe mythological metaphors in our contemporary uh, world, we can draw upon psychological metaphors or philosophical metaphors to understand our practice. Therefore, it is my suggestion that our relationship with Zazen can also provide us with a complementary means of developing an uh, internalized secure base. I also will maintain that this is something that needs to be earned, as in adult, adult attachment relationships, if we don't already have a secure attachment style, 
or indeed, if we do have a, 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 a secure attachment style, Zazen can help us to nurture and deepen that security. So what I want to do next is to give some examples of how by imagining having an intimate relationship with Zazen, we, this can be illuminative of our practice. It's almost like Zazen is the Buddha, or if you like, the mother of Buddhas, that we are, our personal self, is developing this attachment relationship with. So, we could start off with our posture. When we settle into our posture, we remember, uh, so that that's the first thing, settle into your posture. Then the second thing is, Attention, the quality of our attention. We pay attention. And I would suggest that attention is the key to creating our secure base in Zazen and finding our home in the world. Attention itself is transformative. It transforms our relationship with the world in that moment and it also transforms our relationship to ourselves in that moment. It is a bi-directional process. So from our attention flows a quality of feeling that we could describe as a kind of tender, loving care, a kind of tenderness which arises when nursing an infant. Interestingly, our ability to pay attention is crucial to our survival as a species. And it has been refined and handed down to us through thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolution. <clears throat> the work of Ian the Gilchrist, a psychiatrist based in Oxford, who has done research into the um, two hemispheres of the brain, the left and the right hemispheres, and this reciprocal relationship between the two, how they both have different functions, but we both need both to work together. In a nutshell, his research has shown how the left and right hemispheres consistently differ in the nature of attention each applies to the environment among reptiles, birds, mammals, and humans. Quote, this permits the simultaneous application of precisely focused but narrow attention needed for grasping food or prey with broad, open, and uncommitted attention needed to watch out for predators and to interpret the intentions of members of our own species. It is the left hemisphere that provides the focused attention and the right hemisphere that provides the open and expansive attention. So if we are a bird and we're looking to the ground and pecking and figure out what the seed is we want to eat, we need that detailed focused attention. But at the same time, when you may have observed birds, they are also aware of the possibility of predators in the background. So the right hemisphere is alert and mindful of that. So, interestingly, both these forms of meditation, uh, sorry, both these forms of attention can be held simultaneously and they also correspond to the two basic forms of Buddhist meditation. Focused or single-pointed attention, say, to the abdomen, 
an objectless meditation that is open and expansive. What is called shamatha practice in Buddhism, or stilling the mind, is when we focus our attention repeatedly on an object. Often it may be, for example, the abdomen and the rising and falling of the breath. When the mind wanders, we gently bring it back to the object. This kind of meditation generates a feeling of safety, calmness and stability, thereby generating that sense of the secure base that I was talking about. Shamatha practice therefore creates this secure base. Once this stability has been established, we can then explore our body, mind and environment. And this is known as the passion. This is a kind of free floating attention. Like a bird, our attention can hover and move around from one place to another, perch for a while here, then move to another place. So we might perch for a while, for example, on the tension in our shoulders. And then we might move to the sounds of the environment. And then we might come back to something else. And all at the same time, we had this basic sort of attention placed on the abdomen like an anchor. We are always returning to that, but then we might move away and then come back. But that sense of the abdomen and the rising of the breath is kind of like consistently there. So I would encourage you all to experiment with holding both these kinds of attention at the same time. For example, for focusing on the belly acts like the anchor and that we can always return to and are constantly aware of, while at the same time we can allow our attention to hover evenly, perching on different aspects of our experience. The other interesting thing about attention, of course, is that it can only exist in this moment. We can't pay attention in the future or the past. Attention is always now. So when we are paying attention, we are always we're awake to the present moment. When we are attending, we are practicing being presence. We are presencing. This simple practice of ongoing attention, noting the quality of tender loving care, is transformative. It transforms how we experience in the world and it transforms how we experience ourselves. Like I said before, it is bi-directional. Zazen could be described as a practice which alleviates suffering by transforming an individual's relationship to the body, mind, environment. Phenomena catalyzing the emergence of a eudaimonic feeling of well-being, or what we could call the self. We create our secure base in this moment, and we make our home in this moment. And Zazen becomes our trusted, secure base that is always reliable and is always there for us. The development of secure attachment in children is dependent upon the ability of the parent to interpersonally tune to the shifting states experienced by the child. The caregiver helps to regulate these states by their ability to attune and vocalize this attunement through their voice and express it through their face. Thus, if the child is excited, 
the caregiver matches that kind of excitement with the face and the prosody of the voice. If the child is crying, the child, the caregiver matches that with the voice and the face. This interrelationship of called co-regulation um, is vitally important to the development of the child's ability to, uh, to, to develop the emotional life, the, the right hemisphere, right hemisphere to right hemisphere relationships. Um, if, if it all goes well over time, because this is repeated constantly every day, the child will one day develop the capacity to internally regulate, to self-regulate because of the way he internalizes or she internalizes the, the caregiving that he's been or she's been receiving. <clears throat> So this basic form of co-regulation is the beginning, forms the basis of the beginning of the child to be able to self-regulate. Now, in the same way, our Zen practice, in our Zazen practice, we are learning to attune to and be with our shifting internal states. We get to know ourselves and regulate our own states through mindful attunement. Mindful awareness becomes, as Daniel Siegel says again, a form of intrapersonal attunement. In other words, being mindful is a way of becoming your own best friend. In the Buddhist tradition, in general, not so much in Zen, you will also find many different practices based upon metta or loving kindness practice. And in the contemporary secular mindfulness scene, there's also been an emergence over the past few years of the science of self-compassion and many different kinds of practices to promote the experience of self-compassion through meditation. These practices are all designed to stimulate the social engagement system. So in human attachment, the caregiver is a secure base that allows the infant child to explore the world and to play happily with themselves. In the same way, our relationship to Zazen promotes our ability to explore our inner world and experience and tolerate and befriend difficult emotions without avoidance. And this has many therapeutic benefits. I would also recommend building a sense of regularity and reliability in your daily sitting practice. This replicates secure base. For example, sit at the same time approximately every day. Create a sense of familiarity in the place where you sit. Make an altar, place a little Buddha statue there or some flowers or a candle and some incense. By this repetition, sitting at the same time in the same place every day, we are making our home, and over time, it becomes to be our home. We feel a sense of connection, that we are returning home, remarkably similar to the sense in which we get, that the child gets when returning back to the primary caregiver, or as an adult, when we return back to our primary attachment field. Once we have established this relationship, it makes it easier to stop during the day, even for a few minutes, 
just to connect with our secure base and connect with our body and our mind and our environment. We just stop, take a breath, and just check what's going on. However, and this is very important, it is not always going to be this easy, as with everything. We can also resist making our home in this moment. So we need to understand this resistance to surrendering to this moment. So why do we resist? Why do we not feel at home in our body, mind, and environment? If we come to the Zazen practice with a history of relational trauma, and most of us do, or if we come with an insecure form of attachment, we are not always going to be able to find our secure base in our Zazen so quickly. Like entering into any other intimate relationship, it's going to take time. And we may feel anxious, ambivalent, or avoidant. There might be um, times when we separate from our Zazen practice. Then we might reconnect again, and so on. It's like a, a courting relationship, if you like. And um, so we will experience resistance. And especially if we push ourselves too hard too soon, we may even experience re-traumatization. You know, it's not a very good idea to go on a 10-day Vipassana retreat if you've never done meditation before. It's much better, I think, to start small, to start gradually, to build up, to build up our experience of Zazen practice. Start with five minutes, 10 minutes, move to 15, 20 minutes per day. So not everyone is going to enjoy resting in body sensations. Not everyone is going to experience feelings of tender loving care. It is not easy to sit still with others. We may find it extremely discomforting to sit with others in such close proximity. We may find it extremely difficult to be with our thoughts and feelings for half an hour, let alone one day or seven days or ten days. I think resistance manifests in different ways depending upon our own personal trauma history. And it can be triggered at any time by the unconscious memory system by both internal and or external cues. We may experience resistance to being with self-states we would rather avoid. Actually, facing the insubstantiality of the personal self can be maybe scary sometimes. The self is constantly in flux. The self is process. The self is flux. And as we let go of our desire to control and join with the flow, we may experience positive states of well-being, but we may also find ourselves in a state of panic, holding on anxiously in fear of disappearing into a black hole. When we experience emptiness directly, seeing that literally we are no thing, just flowing with the flow of impermanence and interdependence, it can maybe feel very unsettling to begin with. This can especially be so if you push ourselves too hard. So that is why the gradual approach is to be preferred. Safety first, always. It takes a while for our personal self to meet and get to know 
what we might call our universal self. Before the personal self and the universal self can meet and become one in the miracle of just this moment. Zazen is the gateway to this moment, to this joining together, this becoming one. So we therefore may remind ourselves that it's going to take some time to trust our relationship with Zazen. Before we can give ourselves fully to Zazen, to surrendering to this moment, we have to gain trust that it's going to be safe in creating a secure base for ourselves in Zazen. It is also important not to turn it into a kind of I am a rock, I am an island sense of self-reliance. It's important not to use our Zazen practice to dissociate, to withdraw from the vulnerability we experience when we allow ourselves, for example, to fall in love or to trust a relationship with a friend or a, a therapist or a Zen teacher. Hence the importance of working with a teacher on a one-on-one -on -one basis and sharing your experience. And there again, for people who have been hurt in relationships and who hasn't, it's not always going to be easy to establish an intimate relationship with a teacher. But that is another story. To conclude, this practice does not assume we will naturally feel at home in Zazen. The first step is to create a home where we feel safe. The practice itself is the homemaking, and the attention is our core practice. Zazen is the Buddha in the trinity of the three refuges of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. When we trust our relationship with Zazen, we are trusting that we ourselves are Buddha. We are allowing our personal self to ultimately be held by the universal self and to realize the personal self is the universal self. As we surrender into the arms of the universal self, we can experience the deep safety and security, the safety and security that is born, not by trying to control the world or others, but by finding our true home in this vast and impermanent universe. Thank you. We will now open.